Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we have this day to be your people, to cease from our work, to gather together as friends and family in Christ, and to just hear from you how we might be your people, encouraging one another and others in the realities and the grace and truth that you reveal to us. I pray that that would be the case this morning as your word is brought forth, that you would take our minds now, think through them, take my lips, speak through them, take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. As I mentioned in the welcome, every culture without our permission and without Naming it as such imposes an identity formation process upon you. A sense of who you are, a sense of your value. We think by going out and finding who we are, but we're really working off a script that our culture lays out for us, which is imposing its process on us. So Paul, in writing to the Roman church, is helping both the Jewish believers in Christ and the Roman believers in Christ find their identity and their salvation in Christ. How they can know they have salvation in their first century culture. Not boasting in their works, as the typical Jewish believer would have done. Obviously, that's what chapter 3 was all about, right? And he says, verse 27, where's your boasting? It's excluded. And also to the Roman culture, so that they don't remain in the Romans one lifestyle mess, which is basically the American culture today. No, our identity is in Christ. We are new creations. Not as our cultural narratives define us. Our identities are in Christ Jesus. He tells me how to live. He identifies using the gifts that he has given me. He doesn't make introverts extroverts. Introverts are introverts, and they remain introverts, and he uses that introvertism for his glory, and extroverts as well. We're new creations. And what we discover, really, in this passage is human nature really hasn't changed that much, has it? You know, the number one hymn in America is Amazing Grace. Everybody loves that hymn. But polls indicate that most Americans believe you just have to do your best and somehow get to heaven. That's our neighbors, friends. We get our salvation the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Justification through the good life. That just computes. It's endemic to our human nature and has characterized religious thinking from all time. And it was exactly that kind of thinking that the Jewish believers in Rome were thinking. They were trained. They were taught in the Mishnah, which was the rabbinic writings of their day, that Abraham, of all people, earned his salvation completely by his works. They... In in the Kedushin, which is part of the Mishnah of Jewish writings, wrongly interprets Genesis 26.5 and says, We find that our father Abraham performed the whole law before it was written. For it is written, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. 
So it's natural that Paul is, is really driving this point home to the Jewish believers that are in Rome at this time because they really have believed that Abraham performed the law before the Ten Commandments ever came down from Sinai, that he was perfect in all his deeds and he didn't need any repentance at all. Kent Hughes says, so therefore, they would have thought, case closed. But Kent continues, closed for some, but not for Paul, who is the lawyer of grace. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, you'll find it in the back of the bulletin. Because Paul, therefore, brings out and acknowledges Father Abraham was righteous, but he denies that anyone has the right to present him for being righteous as an example by his works. And so what we discover in this passage is don't boast. Okay? Stop it. And therefore, we have a cure for our boasting. And Paul takes, away, takes Abraham away from those proponents of works righteousness and brilliantly, brilliantly sets Abraham forth as an example of those who are saved, not by their works, but by faith alone, sola fide, as the reformers said. So Paul, it's like, it's like giving us a prescription. You know, there's a disease. It's endemic. We all try to work ourselves, working hard to get to heaven, right? All right. He's saying, here's the cure. Here's the cure for Abraham. Here's the cure for David. Here's the cure for the Gentiles. And here's how you can get it. Those are the four points. Here's the cure for Abraham, the cure for David, the cure for the Gentiles. And here's how we can get it. All right? Get hold of it. First, the cure for Abraham. Verses 1 through 5, the apostle begins with, well, what shall we then say? Was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here he quotes Genesis 15, 6, that Rich read for us this morning. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Amen, brothers and sisters. All right. Paul's point here is that Abraham was justified by faith before he did any of the great works for which he is so famous for doing. In order to catch the amazement of what Paul is saying, you've got to go back to the reading that, that Rich read for us in Genesis 15. Just, just quick review. You might remember Genesis 14. Abraham had taken and rescued his nephew Lot. 318, a mini army, went and rescued Lot from the four kings. You remember that? And he comes back. He lived there for 10 years in the, in the promised land in Canaan. And, and yet he had no heir. And he had this kind of post-battle depression going on here. So God speaks to him in Genesis 15, 1 with these words, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward. Your reward shall be very great. Now, I don't know about you, but if you heard the audible voice of God, we don't know whether Abraham was sleeping or how he actually experienced these words, but he knew it was God. If God spoke to us like that, wouldn't that be encouraging? Your, I am your shield. Your reward is very great. You would think that'd be enough. But Abraham says, no, oh God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of that my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no offspring. 
And it was at this point, the promise of the Lord came to Abram. Verse 4 and 5 of Genesis 15. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to it. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number him. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then are recorded in verse 6 the immortal words. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Though Abram had been childless for 80 plus years, and Sarah had been infertile all those years, and was now well beyond childbearing years, Abraham truly believed the Lord would have a baby from his own body. And because of this, and before he had done any works, it was counted to him as righteousness. God was so pleased with Abraham's faith that he not only credited it to him as righteousness, but that night, we continued, there was a covenant ceremony. You remember that in Genesis 15, where the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed between them, thus signifying the promise that he had made to Abraham, and it was unconditional. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And see, the word logizomai, counted here in Romans chapter 4, is used 11 times. And it's, it's amazing, and despite the various ways that different translators translate it, it can be translated, counted, reckoned, uh, considered, imputed, computed. All these mean that the righteousness was credited to Abraham's account because of his faith, not because of his performance. Right? So Paul destroys the wrongful use of Abraham as an example of work salvation. And he does it using the sacred text of the Torah. Who needs the Mishnah? Having established that faith alone is the principle from Genesis 15, 6, Paul continues with, with something that would have been absolutely startling to an ancient Jew's ears. He continues in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is shocking. Okay? First, because Paul discourages working for salvation. Now, to be sure, you know, in response to the salvation, we do works. And he mentions this in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. But not here, because our salvation is not based on our works. And secondly... This was shocking because of the paradoxical description of a God as a God who justifies the ungodly. That would have absolutely assaulted traditional sensibilities. And it assaults ours too, right? It does. In the Old Testament, the acquittal of the wicked and the condemnation of the innocent is repeatedly denounced. Exodus 23.7, I will not acquit the wicked. Thus, to say that God justifies the ungodly seems outrageous to these very wonderful, moral, law-abiding Jews in Rome. You know, how could this be? Well, the answer lies in the difference between law and grace. 
all that God demands in the law, he provides for us in the good news of the gospel. Faith alone, the doctrine of this, it, it, it's offensive to our natural sensibilities. We naturally think justification ought to go to the good. Those who are working hard to get to heaven where I come from. All right? But not to those people. All right? We can understand how Abraham was justified by faith but he, because he was a God-fearer, but the wicked? Well, that's what chapter 3 was all about the last couple weeks, right? There's no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are good enough before the Lord, and salvation will be faith alone or it will not be at all. Paul writes later on in chapter 5, which we'll get to in a couple of years, all right? <laughs> for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So I can quote it now. You'll forget it in a couple of years. Again, grace has the power that the law never had. That's the cure for boasting for Abraham. Take the faith alone pill, dear friends. And then Paul turns to the cure for boasting in David, all right? And what Paul does here, he, he quotes David's blessedness and joyous relief of having been restored to the Lord after he had, one, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and two, had had Uriah murdered, okay? And what does David write? We prayed it in Psalm 31, 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Not count. Does that, does that sound familiar? All right. Paul turns to this psalm because that word is used. Hasab in the Hebrew, lagidzimai in the Greek. But a deeper reason David had unmerited righteousness credited to him was because David, too, had faith alone in God. Think about it. David had broken three of the Ten Commandments. Adultery of Bathsheba, coveted Bathsheba, murdered Uriah. And under the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was no sacrifice that you could offer for premeditated sin. You were guilty. So this is why David cries out in Psalm 51, which is immediately after Nathan caught him. David cries out, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David got it. His case was hopeless. And there was nothing he could do but throw himself Upon God's mercy. Scholar F.F. F. Bruce writes of David in Psalm 32, and if we examine the remainder of the psalm to discover the ground on which he was acquitted, it appears he simply acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon the mercy of God. Paul calls David blessed. David calls himself blessed twice because when there was no work that he could possibly do to atone for his sins, he cried out for mercy on base of his faith alone, and God granted it. So this principle of faith alone is powerfully established for the reader in Rome so that, A, they have their salvation right, their doctrine right, but also their identity right, 
from two great examples of faith alone, not works alone. Father Abraham and King David. So Paul then asks this question in verse 9. Well, well, what about about the Romans? What about these Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then he answers his own question, which is the cure for the Gentiles. Take this pill. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What Paul is saying here, my friends, he indicates that Abraham was counted as righteous at least 14 years before he was circumcised. 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the, he was a, considered a righteous man while a Gentile, a pagan moon worshiper. 14 years, some scholars say, up to 29, before he was even the father of the Jewish nation. Therefore, faith alone was a Gentile principle long before it was a Jewish principle. Faith alone is for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. Abraham is the father of uncircumcised believers and the father of circumcised believers, not on the ground of their circumcision, but on the ground of their faith alone in God. Through faith, we are all one, ladies and gentlemen, both Jew and Gentile, brothers and sisters in Christ. And this transcends the law. That's what 13 and 15 is about. (laughs) You know, if circumcision and its many blessings had nothing to do with Abraham's justification, the law has even less to do with it. He's basically saying your performance doesn't matter before God. It does, but it's a response. If you're thinking for your salvation, it matters. Paul just, just strikes it right in the heart here. He says in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law didn't come for 430 years later on Mount Sinai. And Abraham was made heir to the promise by faith, and there is no way the law could invalidate or restrict the scope of this faith that Abraham had in the Lord. To make the promise conditional on obedience to the law is not even hinted upon here. The promise was given and any obedience to the law that would be meritorious for the salvation would nullify the promise. Righteousness and its promised benefits have always come by faith. I hope you see this. Every page of the Bible is by faith alone. And pursuing righteousness, and pursuing and living unto the Lord, verse 14 and 15, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, But where there is no law, there is no transgression. See, the law, our obedience, us being on the performance wheel, makes the promise worthless. Because if we have to keep the law to receive the promise, the promise would never be fulfilled. 
That's what Paul is mentioning here. And moreover, if you focus on the law, it promotes transgression and God's wrath. No one can keep the law. So the, the law enhances one's sense of transgression and failure and the sense of being under God's wrath, and the law promotes death and pessimism. But faith alone in what God has done brings joy, assurance of the promise, and thus a life of optimism. So what Paul is trying to say to both the Jew and the Gentiles, don't be fooled. The principle of faith transcends the law. And therefore Abraham was counted as righteous because of his faith. So was David. So are the Gentiles. So how do we get it? Well, verse 16 continues. Paul draws this magnificent conclusion. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You got a pill. You got to take it. And it's sharing in the faith of Abraham. As he trusted in the grace of God alone, we trust in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I think it's important to turn back to that covenant ceremony that he, he gave in Genesis 15. Abraham had just been promised that, that, that his, his family would number as the stars. And so he brought the sacrifices and he did the proper sacrifices and he laid them out and he beat away the birds and he fell asleep. And then mysteriously... This smoking fire pot appears. And then God pronounces the covenant. And he says, Abraham, I want to ratify with you a covenant. I, will, I want you to walk between the pieces and sort of reaffirm our covenant. Is that what God says? No. That's not what happened. The sacrifices are made. God appears. And he walks through the pieces of the sacrifices and never asks Abraham to. God went between the pieces and said, I promise to bless you. I promise to do everything that I said. Abraham was never asked to walk through it. And Abraham in chapter 15 is completely shocked. That's the reason why that probably was the first time he understood that his righteousness, his salvation, was a gift. It was credited to him. It was given to him. God was going to accomplish it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I'll take the curse. Let the curse of these animals fall upon me if I don't keep my promise to you, Abraham. I will bless you even if it means I'll be torn apart. And that's exactly what happened. When you look at the death of Jesus Christ, and you really reflect upon it, you understand Paul's amazing statement in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Do you see what's happening? When Jesus Christ was in heaven as part of the Trinity, he had all the praise. He had all the adoration. He had all the love. He had everything every heart wants, all the time with God, all the acclamation, all the praise, all the roaring, all the approval, infinitely so. And yet he came into this world where he was mocked, jeered, beaten, stricken, made fun of, got the booze, got the mockery. There's nothing worse to think you get up there and you do your best at a performance and instead of applause, you get booze. You get tomatoes thrown at you. Rocks. And the crowd says, get out of here. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. He lost the acclamation of heaven and took the approbation of earth and took the rejection that we deserve so we can have what he deserved. What was that? What we deserved was, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Instead, we receive, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. He heard in his soul the words, depart from me, so we could hear in our souls, well done, and good and faithful servant. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Only when we see that, only when we see that, can we be absolutely convinced in our heart of God's delight in you, God's praise of you, and then you don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks about you. You don't care what anybody else says about you. You are a child of God. You only boast in what Jesus has done for you. My identity is in him. None of our cultural narratives matter. Because they're all slavery in, in, in shiny forms. Young people, the culture is telling you all kinds of lies about how you go find yourself. Take this cure. Adults, parents, may we not buy the culture's identity of what it means to be a good husband or what it means to be a good wife, what it means to be a good single, what it means to be a good employee, what it means to be a good parent. No, the only thing that matters is how we're raising our kids in Christ and helping them walk in the giftings that God has wired them in. Not what our culture says. Retirees, we're using your t extra time. Most retirees I know are pretty busy. That's good. You know? Are you using your time for God's glory too? getting involved in ministries you couldn't do when you were working full-time? I want to encourage you. Let's do life together, my friends. And as we do so, let's rest and not boast in anything we do, but boast only in what Christ has done for us alone and place our faith, our trust in Him alone. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable insight into what is the nature of saving faith. In fact, what the nature of our salvation is, it's not just the legal standing, it's your praise, it's your accolades, it's your thunderous applause that we receive because of what you have done for us. We see that faith is not just some kind of general belief. It's truly boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's regrounding our identity so that the world can't push us around any longer. We can look at the world and we say, you're a good thing, but you're not the ultimate thing. You don't control me. You can't make me a slave. I'm a disciple of the living God. I pray, Father, that that freedom of the good news of the gospel would be something each and every one of us would experience this morning for the rest of our lives. And we wouldn't let our heart's tendency to boast in things, in anything, fool us, deceive us, and make us spiritually sick. Heal us with your word. Heal us with the good news of Jesus. That we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus alone. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.